Section number 13 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosehip. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1, Chapter 3. Chemistry of the Arabians, Part 2. Tin consists of sulphur of small fixation, white with a whiteness not pure, not overcoming, but overcome, mixed with mercury partly fixed and partly not fixed, white and impure. That this is the constitution of tin he thinks evident, for when calcined, it emits a sulphurous stench, which is a sign of sulphur not fixed. It yields no flame, not because the sulphur is fixed, but because it contains a great portion of mercury. In tin there is a twofold sulphur and also a twofold mercury. One sulphur is less fixed, because in calcining it gives out a stench as sulphur. The fixed sulphur continues in the tin after it is calcined. He thinks that the twofold mercury in tin is evident from this that before calcination it makes a crashing noise when bent, but after it has been thrice calcined, that crashing noise can no longer be perceived. Geber says, that if lead be washed with mercury, and after its washing melted in a fire not exceeding the fire of its fusion, a portion of the mercury will remain combined with the lead, and will give it the crashing noise and all the qualities of tin. On the other hand, you may convert tin into lead. By manifold repetition of its calcination, and the administration of fire convenient for its reduction, it is turned into lead. Lead, in Geber's opinion, differs from tin only in having a more unclean substance co-mixed of the two more gross substances, sulphur and mercury. The sulphur in it is burning and more adhesive to the substance of its own mercury, and it has more of the substance of fixed sulphur in its composition than tin has. Such are the opinions which Geber entertained respecting the composition of the metals. I have been induced to state them as nearly in his own words as possible, and to give the reasons which he has assigned for them, even when his facts were not quite correct, because I thought that this was the most likely way of conveying to the reader an accurate notion of the sentiments of this father of the alchemists, upon the very foundation of the whole doctrine of the transmutation of metals. He was of opinion that all the imperfect metals might be transformed into gold and silver by altering the proportions of the mercury and sulphur of which they are composed, 
and by changing the nature of the mercury and sulphur so as to make them the same with the mercury and sulphur which constitute gold and silver. The substance capable of producing these important changes he calls sometimes the philosopher's stone, but generally the medicine. He gives the method of preparing this important magistery, as he calls it. But it is not worth while to state his process, because he leaves out several particulars, in order to prevent the foolish from reaping any benefit from his writings, while at the same time those readers who possess the proper degree of sagacity will be able, by studying the different parts of his writings, to divine the nature of the steps which he omits, and thus profit by his researches and explanations. But it will be worth while to notice the most important of his processes, because this will enable us to judge of the state of chemistry in his time. 4. In his book on furnaces, he gives a description of a furnace proper for calcining metals, and from the fourteenth chapter of the fourth part of the first book of his Sum of Perfection, it is obvious that the method of calcining or oxidizing iron, copper, tin, and lead, and also mercury and arsenic, were familiarly known to him. He gives a description of a furnace for distilling, and a pretty minute account of the glass or stoneware, or metallic aludel and alembic, by means of which the process was conducted. He was in the habit of distilling by surrounding his aludel with hot ashes, to prevent it from being broken. He was acquainted also with the water bath. These processes were familiar to him. The description of the distillation of many bodies occurs in his work, but there is not the least evidence that he was acquainted with ardent spirits. The term spirit occurs frequently in his writings, but it was applied to volatile bodies in general, and in particular to sulphur and white arsenic, which he considered as substances very similar in their properties. Mercury also he considered as a spirit. The method of distilling per descensum, as is practised in the smelting of zinc, was also known to him. He describes an apparatus for the purpose, and gives several examples of such distillations in his writings. He gives also a description of a furnace for melting metals, and mentions the vessels in which such processes were conducted. He was acquainted with crucibles, and even describes the mode of making cupels, nearly similar to those used at present. The process of cupellating gold and silver, and purifying them by means of lead, is given by him pretty minutely and accurately he calls it cineritium, or at least that is the term used by his Latin translator. He was in the habit of dissolving salts in water and acetic acid, and even the metals in different menstrua. 
Of these menstrua he nowhere gives any account, but from our knowledge of the properties of the different metals, and from some processes which he notices, it is easy to perceive what his solvents must have been, namely, the mineral acids which were known to him, and to which there is no allusion whatever in any preceding writer that I have had an opportunity of consulting. Whether Geber was the discoverer of these acids cannot be known, as he nowhere claims the discovery. Indeed, his object was to slur over these acids as much as possible, that their existence, or at least their remarkable properties, might not be suspected by the uninitiated. It was this affectation of secrecy and mystery that has deprived the earliest chemists of that credit and reputation to which they would have been justly entitled had their discoveries been made known to the public in a plain and intelligible manner. The mode of purifying liquids by filtration and of separating precipitates from liquids by the same means was known to Geber. He called the process distillation through a filter. Thus the greater number of chemical processes, such as they were practised almost to the end of the 18th century, were known to Geber. If we compare his works with those of Dioscorides and Pliny, we shall perceive the great progress which chemistry, or rather pharmacy, had made. It is more than probable that these improvements were made by the Arabian physicians, or at least by the physicians who filled the chairs in the medical schools, which were under the protection of the caliphs. For as no notice is taken of these processes by any of the Greek or Roman writers that have come down to us, and as we find them minutely described by the earliest chemical writers among the Arabians, we have no other alternative than to admit that they originated in the East. I shall now state the different chemical substances or preparations which were known to Geber or which he describes the method of preparing in his works. 1. Common salt. This substance occurring in such abundance in the earth, and being indispensable as a seasoner of food, was known from the earliest ages. But Geber describes the method which he adopted to free it from impurities. It was exposed to a red heat, then dissolved in water, filtered, crystallized by evaporation, and the crystals being exposed to a red heat were put into a close vessel and kept for use. Whether the identity of sal gem, native salt, and common salt was known to Geber is nowhere said. Probably not, as he gives separate directions for purifying each. 2. Geber gives an account of the two fixed alkalis, potash and soda, and gives processes for obtaining them. Potash was obtained by burning cream of tartar in a crucible, dissolving the residue in water, filtering the solution, and evaporating to dryness. This would yield a pure carbonate of potash. 
carbonate of soda he calls sagimen vitri, and salt of soda. He mentions plants which yield it when burnt, points out the method of purifying it, and even describes the method of rendering it caustic by means of quicklime. 3. Saltpetre, or nitrate of potash, was known to him, and Geber is the first writer in whom we find an account of this salt. Nothing is said respecting its origin, but there can be little doubt that it came from India where it was collected, and known long before Europeans were acquainted with it. The knowledge of this salt was probably one great cause of the superiority of the Arabians over Europeans in chemical knowledge, for it enabled them to procure nitric acid, by means of which they dissolved all the metals known in their time, and thus acquired a knowledge of various important saline compounds, which were of considerable importance. There is a process for preparing saltpetre artificially in several of the Latin copies of Geber, though it does not appear in our English translation. The method was to dissolve sagimen vitri, or carbonate of soda, in aqua fortis, to filter and crystallize by evaporation. If this process be genuine, it is obvious that Geber must have been acquainted with nitrate of soda. But I have some doubts about the genuineness of the passage, because the term aqua fortis occurs in it. Now this term occurs nowhere else in Geber's work. Even when he gives the process for procuring nitric acid, he calls it simply water but observes that it is a water possessed of much virtue, and that it constitutes a precious instrument in the hands of the man who possesses sagacity to use it aright. 4. Salamoniac was known to Geber, and seems to have been quite common in his time. There is no evidence that it was known to the Greeks or Romans, as neither Dioscorides nor Pliny make any allusion to it. The word in old books is sometimes sal armoniac, sometimes sal ammoniac. It is supposed to have been brought originally from the neighbourhood of the temple of Jupiter Ammon, but had this been the case, and had it occurred native, it could scarcely have been unknown to the Romans, under whose dominions that part of Africa fell. In the writings of the alchemists, Salamoniac is mentioned under the following whimsical names Anima sensibilis, Aqua duorum fratrum exorore, Aquila, Lapis aquilinus, Cancer, Lapis angeli congingentis, Sal lapidum, Sal alicoff. Geber not only knew salammoniac, but he was aware of its volatility, and gives various processes for subliming it, and uses it frequently to promote the sublimation of other bodies, as of oxides of iron and copper. He gives also a method of procuring it from urine, 
a liquid which, when allowed to run into putrefaction, is known to yield it in abundance. Salomoniac was much used by Geber in his various processes to bring the inferior metals to a state of greater perfection. By adding it or common salt to aqua fortis, he was enabled to dissolve gold, which certainly could not be accomplished in the time of Dioscorides or Pliny. The description, indeed, of Geber's process for dissolving gold is left on purpose in a defective state, but an attentive reader will find no great difficulty in supplying the defects and thus understanding the whole of the process. 5. Alum, precisely the same as the alum of the moderns, was familiarly known to Geber and employed by him in his processes. The manufacture of this salt, therefore, had been discovered between the time when Pliny composed his natural history and the 8th century when Geber wrote, unless we admit that the mode of making it had been known to the Tyrian dyers, but that they had kept the secret so well that no suspicion of its existence was entertained by the Greeks and Romans. That they employed alumina as a mordant in some of their dyes is evident, but there is no proof whatever that alum, in the modern sense of the word, was known to them. Geber mentions three alums which he was in the habit of using, namely icy alum or rocca alum, jaminus alum or alum of jamini, and feather alum. Rocca or Edessa in Syria, is admitted to have been the place where the first manufactory of alum was established. But at what time or by whom is quite unknown. We know only that it must have been posterior to the commencement of the Christian era and prior to the 8th century when Geber wrote. Germany must have been another locality where, at the time of Geber, a manufactory of alum existed. Feather alum was undoubtedly one of the native impure varieties of alum known to the Greeks and Romans. Geber was in the habit of distilling alum by a strong heat and of preserving the water which came over as a valuable menstruum. If alum be exposed to a red heat in glass vessels, it will give out a portion of sulphuric acid. Hence, water distilled from alum by Geber was probably a weak solution of sulphuric acid, which would undoubtedly act powerfully as a solvent of iron and of the alkaline carbonates. It was probably in this way that he used it. 6. Sulphate of iron or copperas, as it is called, cuperosa, in the state of a crystalline salt, was well known to Geber and appears in his time to have been manufactured. 7. Borac or borax is mentioned by him, but without any description by which we can know whether or not it was our borax. The probability is that it was. Both glass and borax were used by him when the oxides of metals were reduced by him to the metallic state. 8. 
Vinegar was purified by him by distilling it over, and it was used as a solvent in many of his processes. 9. Nitric acid was known to him by the name of dissolving water. He prepared it by putting into an alembic one pound of sulphate of iron of Cyprus, half a pound of saltpetre, and a quarter of a pound of alum of Gemini. This mixture was distilled till everything liquid was driven over. He mentions the red fumes which make their appearance in the alembic during the process. This process, though not an economical one, would certainly yield nitric acid. And it is remarkable because it is here that we find the first hint of the knowledge of chemists of this most important acid, without which many chemical processes of the utmost importance could not be performed at all. 10. This acid, thus prepared, he made use of to dissolve silver. The solution was concentrated till the nitrate of silver was obtained by him in a crystallized state. This process is thus described by him. Dissolve silver calcined in solutive water, nitric acid, as before, which being done, cocked it in a phial with a long neck, the orifice of which must be left unstopped, for one day only, until a third part of the water be consumed. This being effected, set it with its vessel in a cold place, and then it is converted into small fusible stones like crystal. 11. He was in the habit also of dissolving sal ammoniac in this nitric acid, and employing the solution, which was the aqua regia of the old chemists, to dissolve gold. He assures us that this aqua regia would dissolve likewise sulphur and silver. The latter assertion is erroneous. But sulphur is easily converted into sulphuric acid by the action of aqua regia, and of course it disappears or dissolves. 12. Corrosive sublimate is likewise described by Geber in a very intelligible manner. His method of preparing it was as follows. Take of mercury one pound, of dried sulphate of iron two pounds, of alum calcined one pound, of common salt half a pound, and of saltpetre a quarter of a pound. Incorporate altogether by trituration and sublime. Gather the white, dense, and ponderous portions which shall be found about the sides of the vessel. If in the first sublimation you find it turbid or unclean, which may happen by reason of your own intelligence, sublime a second time with the same fuses. Still more minute directions are given in other parts of the work. We have even some imperfect account of the properties of corrosive sublimate. 13. Corrosive sublimate is not the only preparation of mercury mentioned by Geber. He informs us that when mercury is combined with sulphur, it assumes a red colour and becomes cinnabar. He describes the affinities of mercury for the different metals. It adheres easily to three metals, namely lead, tin and gold, 
to silver with more difficulty, to copper with still more difficulty than to silver, but to iron it unites in no ways unless by artifice. This is a tolerably accurate account of the matter. He says that mercury is the heaviest body in nature except gold, which is the only metal that will sink in it. Now this was true, applied to all the substances known when Geber lived. He gives an account of the method of forming the peroxide of mercury by heat, that variety of it formerly distinguished by the name of red precipitati per se. Mercury, he says, is also coagulated by long and constant retention in fire in a glass vessel with a very long neck and round belly, the orifice of the neck being kept open that the humidity may vanish thereby. He gives another process for preparing this oxide, possible perhaps, though certainly requiring very cautious regulation of the fire. Take, says he, of mercury one pound, of vitriol, sulphate of iron, rubified, two pounds, and of saltpetre, one pound. Mortify the mercury with these, and then sublime it from rock alum and saltpetre in equal weights. 14. Geber was acquainted with several of the compounds of metals with sulphur. He remarks that sulphur, when fused with metals, increases their weight. Copper combined with sulphur becomes yellow and mercury red. He knew the method of dissolving sulphur in caustic potash, and again precipitating it by the addition of an acid. His process is as follows. Grind clear and gummo sulphur to a most subtle powder, which boil in a lixivium made of ashes of heartsease and quicklime, gathering from off the surface its oleaginous combustibility until it be discerned to be clear. This being done, stir the whole with a stick, and then warily take off that which passeth out with the lixivium, leaving the more gross parts in the bottom. Permit that extract to cool a little, and upon it pour a fourth part of its own quantity of distilled vinegar, and then will the whole suddenly be congealed as milk. Remove as much of the clear lixivium as you can, but dry the residue with a gentle fire and keep it. 15. It would appear from various passages in Geber's works that he was acquainted with arsenic in the metallic state. He frequently mentions its combustibility and considers it as the compere of sulphur, and in his book on furnaces, chapter 25, or 28 in some copies, he expressly mentions metallic arsenic, arsenicum metallinum, in a preparation not very intelligible, but which he considered of great importance. The white oxide of arsenic, or arsenious acid, was obviously well known to him. He gives more than one process for obtaining it by sublimation. He observes in his Sum of Perfection, Book 1, Part 4, Chapter 2, which treats of sublimation, Arsenic, 
which before its sublimation was evil and prone to adustion, after its sublimation suffers not itself to be inflamed, but only resides without inflammation. Geber states the fact that when arsenic is heated with copper, that metal becomes white. He gives also a process by which the white arseniate of iron is obviously made. Grind one pound of iron filings with half a pound of sublimed arsenic, arsenious acid. Imbibe the mixture with the water of saltpetre and salt alkali, repeating this imbibation thrice. Then make it flow with a violent fire, and you will have your iron white. Repeat this labour till it flow sufficiently with peculiar dealbation. 16. He mentions oxide of copper under the name of aus ustum, the red oxide of iron under the name of crocus of iron. He mentions also litharge and red lead. But as all these substances were known to the Greeks and Romans, it is needless to enter into any particular details. 17. I am not sure what substance Geber understood by the word marcasite. It was a substance which must have been abundant and in common use, for he refers to it frequently and uses it in many of his processes, but he nowhere informs us what it is. I suspect it may have been sulphuret of antimony, which was certainly in common use in Asia long before the time of Geber but he also makes mention of antimony by name, or at least the Latin translator has made use of the word antimonium. When speaking of the reduction of metals after heating them with sulphur, he says, The reduction of tin is converted into clear antimony, but of lead into a dark-coloured antimony, as we have found by proper experience. It is not easy to conjecture what meaning the word antimony is intended to convey in this passage. In another passage he says, Antimony is calcined, dissolved, clarified, congealed, and ground to powder so it is prepared. 18. Geber's description of the metals is tolerably accurate considering the time when he wrote. As an example, I shall subjoin his account of gold. Gold is a metallic body, yellow, ponderous, mute, fulged, equally digested in the bowels of the earth, and very long washed with mineral water, under the hammer extensible, fusible, and sustaining the trial of the cupel and cementation. He gives an example of copper being changed into gold. In copper mines, he says, we see a certain water which flows out and carries with it thin scales of copper, which, by a continual and long-continued course, it washes and cleanses. But after such water ceases to flow, we find these thin scales with the dry sand, in three years' time to be digested with the heat of the sun and among these scales the purest gold is found. Therefore we judge those scales were cleansed by the benefit of the water, 
but were equally digested by heat of the sun, in the dryness of the sand, and so brought to equality. Here we have an example of plausible reasoning from defective premises. The gold grains doubtless existed in the sand before, while the scales of copper, in the course of three years, would be oxidized and converted into powder and disappear, or at least lose all their metallic luster. Such are the most remarkable chemical facts which I have observed in the works of Geber. They are so numerous and important as to entitle him, with some justice, to the appellation of the father and founder of chemistry. Besides the metals, sulphur and salt, with which the Greeks and Romans were acquainted, he knew the method of preparing sulphuric acid, nitric acid, and aqua regia. He knew the method of dissolving the metals by means of these acids, and actually prepared nitrate of silver and corrosive sublimate. He was acquainted with potash and soda, both in the state of carbonates and caustic. He was aware that these alkalis dissolve sulphur, and he employed the process to obtain sulphur in a state of purity. End of section 13